grace, that salvation indeed is coming. Um, and it's here. It's here. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read First um, Peter 3, 13 down through verse 22, just to provide a little bit of context um, for this passage. First um, Peter chapter 3, verse 13 down through 22. Um, before we begin, let me say this. Um, verse 18 through 22 is probably one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. And um, I, I spent uh, an inordinate amount of time studying this passage, trying to figure out how to bring this passage to bear in the life of God's people. And I got to tell you, still not sure how I'm going to do that. Um, relax, you know, it's, I'm going to land a plane. Um, you know, this plane is going to land. However, how it's going to land, you know, I, I'm not quite sure yet. But I, I always depend on the Spirit of God to move in mysterious ways. Now, I say that to you not so you can panic, right, and wonder, well, how is this sermon going to go? No, the Lord's going to be faithful. Um, but I do say that to say, uh, pray, um, you know, as I lead us into prayer, pray that the Lord does move in a powerful way and help me to, to figure out how to bring this passage to bear. And the reason for that is this. Um, I've found out that there are passages in the Bible that are just difficult to understand. And you read it, you study it, you go through your exegesis, and you're just like, man, I'm not sure this is saying like a million and one things, and I'm not really sure how to apply it. And then I'm reminded of that wonderful passage in Proverbs that, uh, where the writer of the Proverbs says, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. And it's a wonderful passage because it reminds us that there are certain passages that God gives to his people that are difficult to understand, but man, it's a blessing when you pour in the work in it and you get the truth out of it and you're able to apply it and then you realize, wow, God, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to go through this process that was difficult and confusing but now I understand the gospel in a very powerful and unique way. And I hope that happens today um, as we read this text. So hear now the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 down through 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days 
of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, who were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, you know all things. And you have given us all things for encouragement and nourishment, even this passage. And so I pray that you might give your wisdom. And I pray that you might give your understanding, illuminate our minds, that we might be able to not only understand what this passage says, but to apply it to our lives. Thank you for the hope of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for all that the Spirit does in our midst, as evidenced by the testimony of grace. We praise you and we thank you now. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, last week, we talked about what happens when we take our private faith public. And what happens when we take our private faith public is that um, we should expect persecution. That's what happens when you take your private faith public. You should expect persecution. And that persecution could be verbal or that persecution can be in the form of physical harm. When we take our private faith public, we should expect people to criticize what we believe and how we exercise that belief. But Peter also says something else. He says, when we take our private faith public, we should expect to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with meekness and in fear. Because people are going to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you hold to the Christian faith even though you are maligned? Peter says that when they see us and they see the way we live, they're going to want to ask us questions. And we need to be prepared to give an answer. Several years ago, I was reading a philosopher that made a point, And his point was that he was astonished about how much people believe and how strongly they believed it, but how little evidence that their beliefs are based on. That people, lea- people believe things that are massive about reality and about faith in general, but if you ask them, why do you hold that belief, they couldn't support it. And I've often found that to be true. Young people, I, I would encourage you especially, you know, you get passionate about all sorts of issues. That's great. It's good to be passionate about a whole bunch of issues. But take the time to understand and know why you believe that. Because you might believe in global warming. I believe that the weather is changing. I see it. I sweat more than I used to. And perhaps that could mean that our Earth is warming. But the level of 
passion that I see people have about issues that they don't fully understand and they don't understand the consequences or, or all the issues that undergird that is terrifying because they hold these things as being gospel without taking the time to give a proper answer for what you believe. And Peter says that that, not, that should not be the case for Christians. Christians need to understand their faith. Now, remember, I said, you don't have to be a scholar in biblical theology or philosophy. You don't. But if somebody asks you, why are you a Christian? You should be able to believe, at least to give a proper defense for why you are a Christian. And that should be the case in every area of your life. If you cannot give a proper defense for what you believe, then dial down the passion surrounding it. Take some time to study and understand what it is you believe before you speak out in the public square. And so Peter tells us that here. And the final thing that Peter tells us, when we take our private faith public, we suffer for doing good. Now, this is a subset of what it means to suffer in general for our faith. But we could expect when we go out in a public square and we live our lives as Christians, we suffer for doing good. Now, on the heels of that statement of suffering for doing good, we get verse 18 through 22. Now, verse 18 through 22, if you pick up a commentary or you listen to any scholar, they'll tell you this is probably one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. And as you read through it, you understand why. What, what does Peter mean when he says that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? What spirit in prison is he talking about? Then he goes on and says that it's in the days of Noah. Wait, what? How, how did Christ, after his resurrection, transmute himself back to preach to the spirit uh, in prisons in the days of Noah? And what does baptism have to do with any of this? In what sense does baptism relate back to the flood? And then you have these odd statements towards the end, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God through the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's so much in this passage that's just super confusing, and it's left us to wonder, well, what's going on here? Now, look, before I get into the exegesis, let me just say this. I'll give you the big takeaway up front. And here it is. Here it is. The whole purpose of verse number 18 through 22 is to provide encouragement to believers. That's it. It's to remind believers about Christ and what Christ has done for them and how Christ is our trailblazer. We don't use that term a lot, right? But think about it, Christ is our trailblazer. I, I was watching um, Charlie Brown, uh, uh, I think it's The Voyage. Uh, my kids will know. We, we always watch it during Thanksgiving, and there's two of them, right? It's Charlie Brown's uh, Thanksgiving, and the other one is what? The Voyage? Uh, Mayflower Voyage, that's it. That's it, Mayflower Voyage. I'm a little bit slow, time change. I'm still trying to catch up. But, but it was the Mayflower Voyage. Now, I don't get my history from Charlie Brown. Calm down. I'm trying to make a point here, right? It's not like I watched Charlie Brown, and then I said, all right, now I understand history. But here's how it works. One of the things that, that got me was as they were making this trip, and the, and the story in general is a pretty powerful story. 
that these people were leaving the life that they knew, and they knew that they were going to experience all of this trouble, all of this uh, travail, over sea and on land. And I, was, I often asked myself the question, even as I was watching the Mayflower Voyage, I asked myself the question, why would they make that trip? Like, were they scared? Of course they were. Were they nervous? Of course they were. But what gave them the impetus to, to take that trip? Here's what gave them the impetus to take that trip. They knew that someone had already gone before them. They knew that someone had already traveled over those seas, that someone had already um, reached that land, and they knew that because someone had already traveled those seas and someone had already reached that land, that the odds of them doing the same and making it were high. What is Peter saying here that's so powerful? He's saying this. The calling of the Christian life is for us to suffer. The calling of the Christian life is that we might suffer mightily for our faith. We might reach a point in which we're low in our faith. We might reach a point in which uh, we feel like giving up on our faith. And he's saying, don't do that. Because there is one that has gone before us, a trailblazer, as it were. And his name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He has gone on before us. And because we know that he has made it, he has suffered. And now he is triumphant. The same thing is true for me and you. Beloved, we have a trailblazer. And his name is Jesus Christ. And regardless of what you are suffering with and struggling with today, you know that you will be triumphant. Not because you will figure it out, but because Christ has already gone before you and he's blazed a path. And you now get to walk in light of that path. That's what verse 18 through 22 is saying. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't take some time to explain exactly how that works itself through. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to take a look at the gospel and we're going to look and see how Christ became your trailblazer and what that actually did for you. And we're going to look at two things about the gospel in and of itself. First of all, what Christ's death actually accomplished for you. What Christ's death actually accomplished for you. That's what these verses tell us. And the second thing it tells us is how it's applied to you. How it's applied to you. First of all, what Christ's death accomplished for you. Second of all, how does Christ's death apply to you. Look at verse number 18. Now notice on the heels of that is verse number 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So they're faced with this reality that they're suffering for doing good. That there's death involved in that. There's suffering involved in that. But in verse number 18, Peter tells them something about Jesus Christ as the ground for our suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So he talks about the death of Christ. Now ask yourself the question, why would he talk about the death of Christ? You know, so often when we think about the death of Christ, we think of it in terms of a tragedy. And all of us react to tragedy different. And, and yes, the death of a person that you find to be a moral person or a good person 
is a tragedy. And that tragedy impacts our life, or, or it could impact our life, or it has an impact on our life. If you go down 193, and I'm horrible with directions, so let me get my point. I think 193 works like this, right? It's north this way and south this way. You, you all are going to help me preach today because I, you know. So if you go down 193 and you go south, right before you hit Nickajack, there's a memorial right on the side there. And, and I pass it often, and it's, it's, uh, it's obviously, to my knowledge, someone who died in a very tragic way. And there was like once or twice I've passed her, and I saw a lady dutifully taking care of that memorial. Um, how many of you know what I'm talking about? It's a Tennessee, yes, yeah, so all of you have seen it. And, and, and every, every morning as I take my kids, I pass that memorial, and I look at that, and, and I'm amazed at how well that is kept. And, and it's interesting to me because you can tell that that death was a tragedy. And you can tell that that person, as a result of that death, was deeply moved to keep that memorial alive, to keep the memory of that person alive. And it's amazing to see. Here's the thing, though. When a death is a tragedy because someone is taken from us, we grieve over that. But the death of Christ was more than just a tragedy. Now, don't get me wrong. Was the death of Christ a tragedy? Absolutely. But it's more than a tragedy because it would be tragic if Christ died for you and I and it accomplished nothing. That would be a true tragedy. When somebody dies and their death does not accomplish anything, that's a true tragedy. And we rightly grieve that. We rightly are sad over that. But the death of Christ is more than a tragedy. The death of Christ actually accomplished something. That's what the gospel teaches us. Now the question is, what did the death of Christ accomplish? And how does it relate to us? The passage tells us that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Yes, that's a tragedy. That he might bring us to God. That's what the death of Christ accomplished for you and I. It accomplished something definitive. That it brought you and I near to God, close to God. That's the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Something profound happened. Now, here's the thing. What is that profound thing that happened? Well, remember the arc of the gospel. The arc of the gospel is that you and I were once in the garden in fellowship with God. It said that mankind walked with God in the cool of the day, meaning that man was holy and happy. We were in fellowship with God. But then sin happened. And sin profoundly changed our relationship with God. Sin completely broke our relationship with God, where man cannot be holy and happy anymore. That man was separated from God. And from that point on, from the point of the fall to now, man has tried to obtain happiness and holiness apart from God. We see it all the time. In fact, the way we do it today is through technological advancement. We've convinced ourselves that the more technologically advanced we get, the happier and more fulfilled man will become. You see this everywhere. 
That's why we want to go to the moon. That's why we want to go to Mars. Man thinks that he could find happiness, joy, fulfillment, the basis for his entire existence, completely apart from God through technological advancement. We see it everywhere we go. Uh, recently, um, I rode in a Tesla. Has anybody ever rode in a Tesla? Teslas are amazing. I mean, I walked in, I, I sat down in this Tesla, and this Tesla was like walking or sitting down into the future. I mean, it was so clean and beautiful. I mean, a Tesla can go from zero to 60 in under three seconds. I mean, a Tesla is amazing. I felt like I was stepping into the future. And in many ways, I was. I mean, I never thought that a battery can operate and move a car, maybe a toy car, but not an actual real car. And here I was in a Tesla, a tremendous achievement for mankind. And after that experience, and I've told some of you of that experience, after that experience, I was reflecting on how far mankind has come. And then a thought hit me. No matter how technologically advanced man gets, we are just as primitive spiritually as we ever have been. You think about that for a moment. They can put someone on Mars. They can take uh, glass and electronic equipment and put it in an iPhone and we could, uh, you know, practically live our lives on a phone. And for some reason we think, that's the high point of human achievement, that if we get more technologically advanced and we, been, we build Teslas and our lives are completely changed by that reality, we've somehow progressed and found meaning. But hear me today, you and I are just as primitive spiritually as we ever have been. You doubt me, read the Bible. We still wrestle with all the same sin issues as the ancients did. You and I still uh, battle with lust. We still battle with pride. We still battle with depression. We still battle with anger. We still battle with uh, depression. We are still, still as primitive spiritually, primitive emotionally than we've ever been as a people. Nothing has changed. In fact, I will say this, the greatest technological advancement spiritually that mankind has ever seen happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Because that revolutionized reality as we know it. That now because of Christ, we could actually progress spiritually. That the sin nature that kept us down, the pain that kept us down, all of those things that we're striving for, hope, meaning, basis for life, all of those things are found now not in the fact that we can build a Tesla, not in the fact that we have iPhones, not in the fact that we have homes with central air and heating. It's found in the fact that Christ actually died, was buried, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That reality has launched mankind into the spiritual revolution. And our lives are completely changed as a result of it. That's the gospel. That's what Christ accomplished for you. Now, that's the explicit reality of this passage. 
But there's also an implicit reality to this passage, something that this passage doesn't say, but you could infer from that. Notice with me that this passage also says that because Christ suffered and died for us, we are now in union with Christ. You say, Pastor, what is union with Christ? It's all over Peter. It's everywhere you go in Peter. First of all, there's a pattern that Peter uses. And the pattern is simply this. God has commands and expectations for humanity. Christ himself has accomplished those things. And now because we are in Christ, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And all that Christ has done has now been applied to us. That's the pattern of the gospel. How do we see that through Peter? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you notice 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, down through verse number 17, Peter calls on God's people to be holy. I'll read to you just verse number 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So God calls us to be holy. That's the command of the gospel. Now, how is it that you and I could be holy? Look down to verse number 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What's his point? If God calls you to holiness, how do you become holy? You only become holy because of what Christ has done for you. Now, this pattern is seen in chapter 2. If you go to chapter 2, verse number 13, Peter says that the call of the gospel is that we live a life of submission. How are we supposed to live a life of submission? We're sinful humanity. But Peter then goes on to tell us in chapter 2, verse number 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. So how is it that you and I can live a life of submission? Because of what Christ has done. And if you are in Christ, you can live a life of submission. And even in our passage today, Peter is calling us to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, to suffer um, as God's people, to suffer for doing good. How can we hope to do that? Peter says, look at Christ. That's the pattern of the gospel. That you and I have been alienated for, from Christ. You and I don't possess the ability to do what God has called us to do. But in Christ and through Christ, we are able to do that. That's the glorious reality of the gospel. Now, some of you are looking at me and you are thinking the obvious. The obvious is this. You didn't know I could read minds. I can because every time somebody mentions Christ and what Christ can do, the logical conclusion is this. If that is true, then why am I so sinful? If Christ died on the cross and what Christ did actually is applied to my life, why do I still wrestle with sin? Why do I still cuss? Right? Why do I still feel lust? Why do I still struggle with fear and depression and anxiety? Why, why is it? If I am united to Christ, why do I still struggle with sin? If you haven't asked yourself that question, you're not a Christian. Because that's the reality of every Christian. Every Christian asks that fundamental question. If it is that I am united with Christ, 
why do I still struggle with sin? The answer to that question is actually found in verse 19 through 22. And that's what leads to these cryptic statements. Now, before I actually exegete that portion, let me say this. How is it that you know the spirit of God is operating in you as a Christian? You say, Pastor Dennis, I still sin. I still wrestle with sin. How do I know that I'm truly saved and the Holy Spirit's in me and the Holy Spirit's operational? You know that because it will become abundantly clear. Let me say it this way. We had a friend over yesterday. I'm sorry, Friday. We had a friend over Friday. And this friend and I, we were trading stories about growing up. And I told him a story about how we moved into this apartment. And we were in this apartment for six years. I mean, sorry, six months. And because of a mix-up, um, we had no electricity. The, the old person that was in um, the, the apartment was supposed to pay the bill, and it was disputed. So our family had to stay in this house, uh, this apartment, for six months without any electricity. And the funny thing was uh, we plugged in all of the appliances, but there was no electricity in them. So we had a fridge, and we had... Um, a stove, and we had a television. We had all of these things, but we had no electricity. And we were just joking around how crazy it was growing up in a house for six months with no electricity. And I told him that one day we were sitting down, yes, me and my brother, we, we had lit a candle, and we were doing homework or whatever, and all of a sudden, the lights came on. I mean, you had to be there. It was so incredible. We looked at each other, we were like, Oh, the lights are on! And we started jumping up and down, and we immediately ran to the television and watched television for three hours. <laughs> like, you know, there's so many other things we could do. But, man, the first thing we did was we turned on the television, and we watched television for three hours. It was glorious, right? Now, hear me today. How do you know that, that you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit is in you? Are the lights on? Are the lights on? Do you desire things of the Lord? When you sing the hymns and the songs of Christ, does that stir your heart? When you read scripture, does it light a fire in you? When you're around the people of God, do you feel a unique joy and privilege? See, that's how you know that the lights are on. Let me tell you something. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones has a statement that's forever etched into my brain. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the devil knows he cannot get you into heaven. So his objective is to make you miserable. And how does he make you miserable? He makes you miserable by the residue of sin and the flesh that still is in all of us even after we have been redeemed. And so how do you and I in this building not be crushed by the reality of the inward dwelling of the flesh, our sin, that we, are, that, that we know dwells in us? Well, are the lights on? Do you see the power and the spirit of God working in your life to convict you of sin, to prod you to righteousness, to bring any hope or joy or anything that you experience in this life? Do you see the lights on? That's a profound reality 
because that reality sustains us even in the dark times. Now, if you understand that reality, you'll understand the rest of this passage. Because what is the rest of this passage about? Let me say this. Do not look at verse number 18 and 19 as a chronological order. So, so don't look at it in the sense that, hey, you know, Christ died in the spirit, and then Christ went and proclaimed um, to the spirits in prison. This is not chronology. What verse number 19 does is it gives us an explanation of what Christ does for us by the power of his spirit. This is an editorial comment on the spirit of God. So notice at the end of verse number 18, he says, being put to death in the flesh, but, but made alive in the spirit. Then he goes on to say what the spirit of God does. Not just the, resurre the resurrected spirit of God, but the spirit of God in the life of God's people. What does the spirit of God do in the life of God's people? Well, he says that that same spirit which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What is he talking about? Simply this, that the spirit of God worked in Noah to proclaim and preach righteousness to the people in Noah's day. Now you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how do you know that's the case? Well, think of the context. Peter is talking to a group of people that are being persecuted for their faith, and they're wondering, is the Spirit of God working in me? How do I see the power of God working through me? I'm being persecuted for my faith. I'm being put down for my faith. I still struggle with uh, anger and frustration and depression. I want to give up on my Christian life. How do I know the Spirit of God is working? He's saying, look, look at what the Spirit of God did in the days of Noah, who was going through a time period far worse than any one of us have ever experienced. Think about the days of Noah. Just for one moment. Imagine your family are the only Christians in the world. Man, I'm so thankful that my family aren't the only Christians in the world. I love bringing my family to church because they look at other people and they're like, oh, my family isn't that odd. Oh, I can see other people don't let their kids do the crazy things that I want to do too. It's wonderful to be around a whole bunch of believers where we're encouraging one another and lifting one another in Christ. But in the days of Noah, that wasn't the case. Noah was the only preacher of righteousness. And imagine how Noah must have felt. Imagine the mental health issues Noah endured as a result of being the only person the Bible describes that is righteous on the earth. You know, there's a curious story that after the flood, Noah began to make wine. And as Noah began to make wine, the scripture says that he got drunk and passed out in his, um, his tent. Why would Noah get drunk and pass out in his tent? You know, some people say, oh, Noah's ignorant. He didn't know that wine had properties that would make you drunk. That's not the case. The reason why Noah got drunk and passed out was because Noah was one of the only righteous people to walk the earth. He had no fellowship, he had no encouragement, he had no preaching or teaching on Sunday and throughout the week. 
it was only Noah, and Noah suffered from mental health, and Noah got drunk and passed out. And one of his children found him and began to make fun of him. And I think the reason why his child began to make fun of him, because that was Noah's pattern. That after the fall, Noah just plunged into depression, and he started drinking, And here it is, Noah, after he did this wonderful thing for God, completely lost it. And yet, what does the Bible tell us about Noah? Listen to these statements. In Genesis 6, 9, Noah was righteous, blameless, and walked with God. Uh, Peter himself, in Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 5, says Noah was a preacher for righteousness. Ezekiel, Ezekiel said that Noah was just as righteous as Daniel and Job. Why would that be said of Noah, a sinner? Because the Spirit of God is working in him. Listen to me, beloved. What makes you and I righteous? It's nothing that we have done, whether good or bad. What makes us righteous is that the Spirit of God is at work in you. That's what makes you righteous. And it's that spirit, because it's working in you, defines who you are, not your sin. Not your sin. And so in this passage, we see Peter saying something amazing. That the spirit of God was at work in Noah, preaching the gospel in Noah day. And you know what? The spirit of God is in you, working through you to proclaim Christ even now. Now, what about baptism? That's actually the best part. Now, notice in verse number 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, people read that and say, well, this is baptismal uh, regeneration. No, it's not. No, it's not baptismal regeneration. First of all, Over and over in the scripture, we we read that we are saved by faith, not by baptism, right? That's a clear teaching of scripture. However, even within this passage, Peter tells us what he means by baptism saves. Look towards the end. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That phrase right there is the phrase of covenant. In other words, he's saying this, by the testimony that we have given To God, that we believe in him and we trust in him. And we are baptized. Baptism marks us as the people of God. Not that baptism actually saves, but the profession by which we are baptized uh, by saves. By the spirit of God, we are saved. And it's that profession of faith that lets us know the spirit of God is working in us. That's the point of this passage. And now notice he says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And verse number 22 tells us the impact or the effect of the resurrection. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the victory and the vindication secured by Christ for each and every one of us inside here today. You want to know why in the Reformed faith we always talk about the fall and resurrection? Some of you have been in the Reformed faith, you know that well. 
here's why, and I'll end with this. I had a friend, so why do we talk about creation, fall, and redemption, and the resurrection? I had a friend, for about three years, he got sick and didn't know why. And he went to the doctors, and the doctors tried to figure it out, and he couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. Until one day, he went to a doctor, and the doctor said, you have Lyme disease. You have Lyme disease. Now, after the diagnosis, he went through a horrible period of trying to detox his body and, and get him to a state where he could, he could feel well. And one day I was talking with him. I actually went over and I started praying, um, praying for him. And he said, Dennis, this is actually not the worst part. He said, the worst part was not knowing what was wrong with me. Because, because I didn't know what was wrong with me, and I was trying all these different things. I didn't have hope. Here's why we talk about creation, fall, and redemption so much in the Reformed faith. Because when you know what's wrong with you, when you understand that you're a sinner in need of Christ, and only through Christ can you be healed and come to a knowledge of who God is and be happy and holy, only when you understand that reality, you can understand the hope of redemption to come. And if you're sitting down here and you don't understand fully why you are sick, you have no hope. Only people who understand why they're sick, what they're sick with, can understand the treatment that the gospel actually calls to. That's why we talk so much. That's why Peter constantly brings us back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when we understand our sickness, then we can understand the cure, and then we can understand the hope that happens even in the midst of sickness. And the hope that happens in the midst of sickness is one day you will be redeemed, triumphed in heaven, and vindicated because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the hope of the gospel. We thank you so much that at the end of the day, we know our sickness. And even as we labor and suffer with this sickness, we have hope. That sickness might never be removed in this life. There are many of us, we will struggle with the effects of the fall. All of us will struggle with the effects of the fall. That is a guarantee. But because we know what our sickness is and we know the remedy, we can have hope. And so help us to rest in that hope. Be with us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.